amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Forensic Psychology is a podcast that provides an illuminating window into the workings of the criminal mind. Now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. I think we're going to go live right now. Folks, we just shared a post talking about the show. We're welcome back, everybody, here to the show. Tomorrow's our last day for the live week, our special live week, just to kind of get for you to know all the hosts. And we're going to get to know you. And we're alive. Hey, welcome back, Dr. Hickey. Good to be back again. Thank you. Yes, and today we are live, so if anybody has questions, please, by all means, ask us. Today we're going to be talking about serial killers and their fantasies. By the way, again, 12 o'clock tomorrow, so we're going to be talking about serial killers and their fantasies. Some of the stuff may not be light, so I'm just going to warn you. Uh, this could get a little bit dark, So, but if you have any questions in regards to serial killers, psychop psychopathy, please, by all means, hit us in the chat right here to the side. So, Dr. Hickey, what is going on now? We know with serial killers, a lot of their murders explains a lot of the violence that they commit, why they do certain things, why they have signatures, why they have all these things. And a lot of it's driven by fantasies. Am I off or am I right? You are absolutely correct. Uh, fantasy drives a lot of what, what goes on. Uh, most people, uh, we all have fantasies and, and we all have, all have sexual fantasies as well. Uh, but most people don't have fantasies about raping, killing little, little children or little girls or raping women. We, we don't fantasize that way. Uh, we're not socialized. We're not conditioned that way. But when you have someone who goes through a lot of trauma in their childhood and they end up going down this pathway, the wrong pathways, and they, they start to um, you know, masturbate to deviant things, um, very strange, bizarre sexual things, and sometimes very, very harmful things. Uh, that's just a, that's a very dark rabbit hole that people some people go down and you know many of them do not end up acting out and killing people but those who do um their, their fantasies when we start to unpack it their fantasies are very very dark uh and, and so uh, that's we'll something that, that a little light for the today since we're live <laughs> yeah yeah uh, we, dark. We, we can't go too dark but i, I can't say that um you know, understanding their fantasies helps an investigator know uh, well are they going to be acting out again? Would they act out again? Oh, are they acting out their fantasies? Are they, are they leaving signatures as a result of their fantasies? Uh, what, what, is, what is the connection between the fantasy, of course, and the actual behavior? So we often see their fantasies being played out. Um, there was one, one serial killer who uh, fantasized a lot, and he, he was an artist, uh, Kerry Stainer, and so um, he drew a lot of, photo, a lot of, a lot of paintings of, of these women's heads on the ground in, in the woods. And, and, and then the monsters hiding behind the trees. Well, of course, he was the monster. And I, I examined his, his paintings. He had probably 25 or 30 of them. Uh, pretty well done. I mean, forensically speaking, of course. 
and, and uh, you know, it's very clear that it was important to him to be in the woods with women in order to terrorize him. And, and that's exactly what he did. Um, he, he liked to go into the woods and, and attack people. He took one, one 16 year old girl after he killed her mother and her best friend and took her out into the woods and marched on the woods and, and then some, did some terrible things to her, almost decapitating her. But it was the experience of being in the woods, creating the fear in the victim that, that really was sexually arousing for him. Uh, he could have killed her at, 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 at a motel room where he was with, uh, with the other two, but he chose not to because he wanted to act on that fancy. And that was being in the woods alone with her late at night uh, where he was the monster. And that's exactly what he did. Wow. So now if we go back, I want to kind of go back on the timeline um, and there's their childhood. It sounds like too, um, it begins a lot. Ted Bundy actually mentioned this because I know he read the FBI report, but uh, it starts off a lot with violent pornography. Is that about right? Well, uh, you know, pornography, and there's different forms of pornography, uh, certainly sets a stage. I mean, there are people who look at pornography and they don't do anything other than look at pornography, but there are those who use it as a facilitator to help create their fantasies and perpetuate the fantasies. Um, fantasies uh, evolve. They're not exactly always the same. I mean, there are some fantasies they kind of ruminate over, um, but the, the, the pornography, it can go from sort of general pornography to really, you know, illegal pornography, illegal you know, erotica, child porn, and those, those types of things. Um, they can really graduate, if you will. So it, it does take some work to do that. And so uh, they reinforce it through masturbation. Um, and then, of course, when they, once they start the killing, uh, that can be reinforced as well uh, by the actual the, the way they kill their victims. They're always exploring. Uh, you know, the boss of Strangler did that. He explored um, true fantasy and then, of course, acting out. He explored uh, this his signatures, you know, tying bows around the victims' necks and so on. Um, yeah, he really did explore his own fantasies that way. And, of course, they evolved, uh, as we see often with, with these offenders. And I've interviewed several serial killers um, and I've talked to some about, about their fantasies and it's amazing how, I mean, they're so, so different than my, my fantasies and, and how, and, and how they evolve. So um, it is a different, very dark pathway, but I always tell investigators as I train law enforcement, I always tell them, look, if you want to understand a, a future behavior of somebody, you, if you can unpack their fantasies, where they've been and where they're going, that's, that's the key to it. So there's another part to this we often don't talk about. The fantasies are connected to paraphilia. So a paraphilia has three, three paraphilia is, is, you know, it's bizarre sexual gravitation through acts or, or, um, or, or fantasy. So a paraphilia has three components. The first component, of course, is the etiology. Where did it come from? Uh, what started maybe in childhood? And then the second part is this actual fantasy that drives the, the behavior, which is the third part of the paraphilia. And it's, it's amazing how, um, the different types, we see a lot of kind of non-physically harmful paraphilia, but still criminal, like voyeurism, exhibitionism, frauderism, somnophilia. Nobody gets hurt, uh, but, but they are still um, sexually deviant and, and, and acting, out, acting out their fantasies that way. Some of those people who get involved with those types of fantasies um, and, and behaviors then will, will graduate to other kinds of violent things that involve even much more violent types of fantasy. So it is a, it is a, 
a, a, a continuum, and not everybody who starts out at the beginning ends up as serial killer. Of course not, uh, but there are those who do, and of course that, that's what brings all of our attention to to serial killers, of course, and mass murderers. And I think the can you hear me all right? Yes. I know that some of the serial killers will tend to uh, disassociate when their children, a lot of them have, have had abuse, child abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, whatever it is. And I'm talking severe neglect. Um, a lot of that, uh, do you see the fantasies being derived when they disassociate at that point? Do they start fantasizing about things, uh, harming animals, things of that nature? Yes. No? So in, in childhood, when there's a severe abuse, a neglect, I mean, uh, children will often forget what we, what we say to them, what we do to them, but they'll never forget how we make them feel. And there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's childhood trauma that we talk about. Um, it's, it's real. It's, it's like PTSD um, and these children, because they don't have a voice as children. They, they can't express themselves that they're being raped by this male adult. Uh, they, they don't know how to say it and talk about it. So they, uh, they, maybe they'll start setting fires they um, they will harm animals sometimes, and, and other you know have conduct disorders at school, um, a variety of things that because they have to have a voice. So this is their voice as children, and as they go through puberty, uh, then they masturbate to you know increasingly violent fantasies. Um, then as they as they progress, they stop doing maybe the harming animals and setting fires because now they're adults or they're they can do adult behaviors. And they're, and they're more comfortable with that. So now they can harm people. Um, and we see this progression. And I've talked to parents of, of kids who have gone off the rails and, and really have you know, become rapists. Hey, I talked to a couple of grandparents one time after a lecture I gave, and they said, look, we have a, a grandson. Uh, he's 15 years old. And we're very worried, worried about him because he's, he has a history of harming animals and, and setting fires. And I said, so where is he? Well, he's in juvenile hall. I said, for setting fires? No, no, no. He's there for raping his sister. <laughs> wait a minute. Oh, wow. no. I, so I stood back and said, well, wait a minute. Kind of a Jeff Fox with you. What, you didn't mention that. And they said, well, we know you're in a hurry, Dr. Ricky. So we have a question for you. And here's what's the question. Do you think our grandson is dangerous? And I looked at them and I said, not, and he had raped his sister twice. I said, not only is your 15-year-old grandson dangerous, it's too late. It's highly unlikely they, that we're going to turn that back that clock now. There should have been intervention many years ago, but you probably didn't see it coming. And so now here he is, you know, he's become a violent offender. And, you know, they're more concerned about him harming animals than he was raping his sister. So very clearly that, you know, there was a lot of dysfunction going, going on in that family. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned one of the stories about the Boston Stranglers. What other serial killers can you... Do you remember that that uh, their killings and their signatures were driven by fantasies? Any other examples? Well, I mean, we, there there are many of them. Um, some are much more open about their fantasies. Some don't want to talk about their fantasies at, at all, even though you can tell that the the crime scenes are definitely fantasy driven. Whenever you have a crime scene where there's signatures, because two thirds of serial killers are sexually motivated by their crimes. The other third have other issues, um, and so. Because because they're 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 driven uh, by that by the signatures, you know that there's fantasies involved with those signatures, uh, where where they do things to because you know the, the signature is to act out the fantasies. Uh, it's not required to commit the crime, but it's required to fulfill a fantasy. 
And so they are, it's all related. Um, you know, I mentioned, you know, Kerry Steiner uh, in, in California where he, he acted out. Um, John Wayne Gacy, you know, he was a, an, an artist of sorts and he, you know, paid a lot, a lot of paintings um, uh, and he used to dress up as a, dress up as a clown. Well, he, he didn't do it because he really wanted to take care of children, uh, children's parties. He loved to create fear in them, the element of fear, but by, by, by acting out this idea that he was a clown. Well, if you actually look at his, at, his, at his clown faces, they were quite scary. And the idea was he liked, he liked the power. So some of these fantasies, of course, driven by the need to be in control and power. We had another uh, offender who um, had been uh, had seen uh, some uh, books and illustrations of women uh, of women being killed um, and, and and tied up and hung a certain way, and he ended up doing exactly the same thing to his female victims. He went out in the woods. He took his victims in the woods, and he actually hung them and tied them up exactly the same way that he had seen it before. And so uh, that became part of his, his, um, his MO and his fantasy and, and of course, and his signature. So they were, you know, all these connections all, all the way along. Um, and a lot of times their signatures can be something from childhood, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, so they can start early on in childhood um, doing things, but they don't necessarily recognize it as a signature. Uh, we had, um, uh, Jürgen Barch, a guy over in Germany, kid who was had been in a number of um, foster care, he ended up being taken in by uh, a group of, of, of um, a religious order. We'll just say religious order, and but they abused him, they sexually abused him, and then they would punish him. They'd put him into a closet where he had, he was very claustrophobic, and they would lock him in this dark, dark room, um, and they would tie him up a certain way. Well. As he got older, living in that institution, he started abducting young boys, younger than himself, and he tied them up exactly the same way that he had been tied up. And he started up, um, abusing the boys, and they started killing them, and they started eviscerating them and mutilating them as, as he got older. So this all this trauma that he had experienced as a, as a child, living in foster care, and then, of course, with this religious order that um, all, all manifested itself as he became more powerful, physically more powerful, um, and he was able to expand on his on, on his fantasies. So that's uh, very dark, very dark. Yeah, yeah, and that's something I want to make sure people understand too. When we said earlier about child abuse for child trauma, the overwhelming majority of people who have suffered child abuse, sexual abuse, whatever, do not become serial killers, folks. Oh, absolutely correct. Correct. I mean, there's there's a number of ways that people deal with deal with their trauma. They might do something virtual on the internet where it's not a crime to kind of relive your trauma because most of these people have been traumatized. They either go to, into, into therapy. Um, they have to they have to have a support system at home. Things that can help them through that trauma and to and to deal with it. But those people who do not have a voice, uh, it can be it can really have a a, a long term very negative consequences. So, but yes, the, the vast majority of people who are traumatized don't act out their fantasies. Although we do see some that do it. Yes. Yeah, and the other thing too, it's usually not just one thing either. It's not just the abuse. It could be prenatal issues, exposed to environmental toxins, lead, uh, yeah. trauma in the birth. All these things combined usually are playing a role, right? So, yes. Yeah, so I'm a 30-70 split. 30% is about biology and genetics. The other 70% is, is about nurturing or, or, the, or the lack of nurturing. And so 
nature, biology can set the stage, uh, can load the gun, if you will. And then, of course, the nurturing or lack of nurturing can pull the trigger. Um, so that's important that I mean, lots of people who are, someone asked me one time, is it possible to be born a criminal? Uh, yes and no. Uh, genetically, no. But biologically, if you're traumatized, if the, if the baby, for example, in the womb is traumatized by a violent, domestic violence, for example, um, then the child is born, the child is at greater risk, uh, pre, more predisposed uh, to, uh, to long-term adverse effects. It doesn't mean they will be, but it, it puts them at greater risk. And so technically you could say, yes, uh, they're born, but um, it does take the nurturing or the lack of nurturing to, uh, to really, set it, uh, really set it off. Um, and then we all can make a difference. If we can reduce, for example, we can reduce violence in the home, domestic violence, we really can reduce uh, all kinds of other you know, negative behaviors, you know, serial killing, for example. We could really we blow that out of the water if, 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 we, if we are more attentive to reducing domestic violence. Oh, absolutely. And again, folks, every time we look for the etiology or the cause of it, we're not giving excuses here. We're just trying to understand it. It's like Dr. Hickey says, trying to mitigate any future incidences, yeah. at least. Right. I, I agree with you that uh, it's certainly, uh, you know, we're not, we're not pointing the finger, but we are trying to mitigate this. We're, we're trying to help people understand that we all can participate in, you know, reducing domestic violence and, and reducing trauma. Um, we just have to be aware of it. It, it doesn't mean that when, when somebody um, acts out because they were traumatized as a child, that they get a pass on that. They don't get a pass. They, they still have to be governed by laws and rules and regulations like all of us. Um, but when we, you know, you get, you know, you go to trial and, and you hear about these horrific backgrounds and people say, well, they're just trying to get out of it. Well, actually, usually they're not. They're simply saying, this is what happened. Um, and yes, I am responsible for what I did. Um, I mean, even, I mean, there are some serial killers who are very upfront. In fact, in my, in my research, all the necrophiles I've ever interviewed or researched, not one of them is a true psychopath. They're all sociopaths. Uh, they're still predators. Uh, but but why, why are they not true psychopaths? Because they have attachments to people. And so their fantasies keep them connected to people. So like they still love their moms. Jeffrey Dahmer still loved his mother, uh, but he did say, you know, I, I have this urge, I have this urge. And in fact, several serial killers had said, including Ted Bundy, who talked about this, this gnawing force within, this, this, this voice from within that was pushing them. Of course, from uh, a perspective that I take also is that there are some true psychopaths who become, their fantasies have driven them so far that they have no empathy, they have no sense of compassion or remorse for what they've done. They're totally disconnected from that. Whereas someone who, like a, like a Jeffrey Dahmer, um, he said, look, my life was pathetic. You know, I'm sorry for what I did. I really am sorry. And I, I think, I believe he, he was sorry for what he did. Um, but he was driven by a lot of childhood, childhood trauma. Uh, but he also recognized that, um, I mean, I see some of these offenders being truly evil, um, not just the acts they do. People often say, well, they're crazy. No, they're not crazy. What they do is crazy, but they themselves are not crazy. However, when you get into um, true psychopaths, they're not only, what they do is evil, but they are evil. Um, and so it gets a little complicated as we start to unpack this because there's so much that we can learn from these people. Um, and we, obviously we want to reduce 
uh, reduce that, 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 that type of criminal activity. So that's another part of thing I wanted to, to highlight yeah. is terms can get confusing for a lot of people out there because when somebody says they're crazy, how do you define that? And yeah. so there's a difference between clinical diagnoses Absolutely. And criminal diagnoses, if there is such a thing. Well, uh, want to help us out a little bit? Sure. Well, we don't, uh, the diagnostic manual, we don't diagnose, use on psychopaths, okay? Uh, however, um, Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. There is a lot of confusion because people make assumptions that if you are, are, are a serial killer, for example, that you must be a psychopath. Well, we, we know that's not necessarily true at all, that most serial killers are not true psychopaths. And, and we also know that um, when somebody kills 20 people, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're insane. In fact, usually they're not. Only maybe 2% of serial killers are really uh, considered to be legally insane. They don't know right from wrong. They can't differentiate. Um, that's a different, smaller, much smaller group. Most of them do know uh, that it's wrong. Some say, I knew it was wrong. I just had this compulsion to do it. Um, others said, you know, how much they enjoyed doing it. They, they loved it because they were very sadistic and they enjoyed the control over, over their victims. Um, so there's no one profile of a serial killer. Uh, and, and to say that they're crazy is truly uh, completely incorrect. Uh, again, there's so few that are legally insane because they do know, right? They do know what they're doing is wrong, but they don't feel badly about it. And in psychology, we use the term semantic aphasia. You know, they know the words to the song, but they don't, they don't feel the music. They know it's legally wrong to kill somebody, but they don't care. And they, and they don't feel badly about it. Um, whereas you and I, we, people listening in, you know, we all have a conscience um, you know, and we don't go around hurting people because we, we feel bad about it. We have to pay, we have to pay a price for that. And, and you know, there's cognitive dissonance going on with this. But um, for, for these people, that part of the brain, um, the, like part of the, of the frontal lobes, uh, get to this today, but there is damage. And, you know, the, the, that parts of the brain have actually atrophied. Uh, so they're no longer functional. So those are the people who have no sense of empathy towards their victims. And, and they don't get it. They don't understand empathy at all. I've seen them in courtrooms. They, they just don't get it. They, they, they can fake a lot of different types of, of emotions, make themselves cry and so on. But they don't feel anything about it. But what they cannot, what they can't um, mask is, is, is empathy. They, they don't understand it. It just doesn't make any sense to them because they have no victim empathy. That's why you can never, there's no treatment for, for, for true psychopaths. Because they have no victim empathy, they you can't teach that to them. 
so that's what makes them so so very dangerous. Absolutely. And you know, their fantasies do their fantasies consume them? So uh, someone said that uh, no one's dangerous all the time, and, and I have to agree that even bad guys have to sleep. Okay, so are they consumed um, when they get into their cycles of their fantasies about needing to kill? So there are things, and I did a, what's called a trauma control model, and in that model it shows how once they get down that pathway on your fantasizing, then they get in, caught into a spiral. So there are things that trigger them as adults that will remind them then or the need to, to kill again, to feel powerful again, um, to feel to be able to act with their sadism, whatever it might be. So they cycle around. And as they, as they do, they get caught up in those fantasies and they'll often work really hard to um, recreate those fantasies and maybe either become more sadistic or make them more realistic. Um, we saw that with, with the Boston Strangler. I mean, he uh, did some terrible things to his victims. And then uh, I think he got... Um, sort of caught up in it that he it wasn't working for him anymore. Just like Jeffrey Dahmer, the fantasies, his fantasy was, in the Dahmer case, was to build this table, which he did, and then put the heads of his victims on, on the table behind him. In front was this large uh, black chair that he'd seen in, in, in one of the movies, I think, I, think it was, I think it was Hellraiser. And then on one end of the table, he had a fully articulated skeleton cleaned off, all the flesh cleaned off. And the other one, the other skeleton was in the bathroom, in, in the tub being cleaned off. His fantasy was he was going to sit in this big black chair that the emperor had sat on um, in when he was in, in this movie. So he's going to sit in this big black chair and he was surrounded by his, his friends. Uh, and, but his friends would never leave him. He, he had consumed them. They were part of him physically and in every, in any, in every other way you can imagine. They were, they were part of him. And so for, he said, finally, when I can do that, uh, then I will feel powerful. And which is really sad that you, you think about somebody who has to do that in order to feel powerful. Because one thing about Dahmer is that he never felt powerful. He, uh, he was a class clown, um, not because he felt powerful, because he didn't at all. And uh, we often see that with, with, with people who are acting on in classes, but not, not always, but sometimes. And Dahmer was one of those. He, he just wanted to be, to be recognized. He didn't want people to leave him. And, and uh, he wanted to have friends. Uh, by today's standards, we would call him an incel, uh, involuntarily celibate man who um, who had a lot of a lot of conflicts uh, in his life and in his fantasies. So he fantasized about being with somebody, but he wanted them to be unconscious. That was his fantasy. He wanted them to be unconscious. Why? Because he wasn't comfortable with a live, living person. Because intimacy was just more than he could handle. And then so that just progressed from that. That's a whole another whole another episode. But that whole experience of being with someone who was unconscious or, or maybe had been dead or was dead. Um, and so that's, of course, he became a, a necrophile and, 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 and he was more, more comfortable with dead people. Um, and, yeah, and I've interviewed necrophiles. I've interviewed necrophilic serial killers and they are a very different group of people. They want you to like them. You know, they're nice people. Uh, you know, for instance, speaking, they're nice people. And they're predators and they're dangerous, but they're not true psychopaths. They might have killed 20 people, but they're not true psychopaths. So that's where it gets a little dicey to understand the differences. What, he, what, what they do is not always a reflection of who they are. Uh, if that gets, maybe that's a little bit too complicated. But anyway, we can talk about that some more. 
folks, if you have any questions, please uh, go ahead and ask. You hit it on the chat side here. As I see some of you have been with us for quite a while. Uh, go ahead and hit those questions on the chat. Um, in addition, tomorrow we'll be back here at 12 p.m. Pacific time talking about uh, the border and the drug cartels. So you definitely don't want to miss out on that. And by the way, you can catch all of Dr. Hickey's shows on the playlist, uh, The Dark Side. You'll see that as we look for different areas, we talk about different concepts when it comes to serial killers, pedophiles, whatnot, going to the dark side, really is. So Dr. Hickey, again, we talked about fantasies, um, how they help the homicide investigations, obviously, because you can see what's driving that individual. So I know in the Seattle one, there was the guy that was, uh, was strangling people with shoelaces. Uh, there was the one guy that used to put them in, he made them into dolls, if I remember. Remember that guy? Yes. Uh, um, name, but yes. What was the point um, of recreating the dolls? I think they copied it off of, uh, I think Criminal Lines did that. Yes. So you know, there have been offenders who have, Done that. We had a case where the um, it's a Russian case. In fact, uh, he would he was an incel kind of guy. He never had a girlfriend, never had sex with a woman. Uh, um, he lived with his parents. He was forty five years old. Um, he um, he would become an expert. He had a master's degree and became an expert uh, on, in graveyards. Well, reason forty percent of necrophiles work in mortuaries and graveyards, and and that's where he went. Um, and became quite well known for his ability to explain the historical significance of different graves and so on. But the other side part of him was that he got to be close to dead people and that was really arousing for him. So he, he didn't kill anybody. He was simply, he got bodies that had been buried for 25 or 30 years, get the skeletons of young girls, teenage girls, and you bring them home in his room, in, in his apartment, well, in, in the house with his parents. He had 26 of these skeletons they had dressed up in clothing from other graves and, and uh, earlier, you know, newer graves. And so when you look at them, they go, oh, you look like dolls. And then you get closer, you go, oh, wait a minute. That's a skull. That's a, that's a, real, that's, that's a real skeleton. And he had 26 of them. And he, he told his parents that, hey, I'm just doing some research, you know. And, but, but he was you know, very sexually aroused by them. So that, he, would, he, he was more comfortable being with a skeleton uh, that it could be around a live woman or a girl. Uh, and so that's where he went. And so, yeah, that, that was another one. I remember reading that one. That was kind of throwing me off a little bit. Folks, again, if you have any questions for those who just joined us, by all means, you can throw them out on the chat. If you have any questions about serial killers, psychopaths, sociopaths, things of that nature, let us know as we're talking about the fantasies of serial killers. And it gets pretty dark. We try to keep it light today because it still can be a lot darker story, story. <laughs> yeah I, I don't mean to offend anybody i just yeah it's my my work uh and so sometimes i forget that you know who i'm talking to here but but there are uh, we have um, a large following now um at our university we have a large program in forensic psychology and uh, so now we have a lot of students who are focusing uh, on their dissertations and earning their phds in the area of forensic psychology and, and they're going to the dark side to understand this because in the past, um, law enforcement really hasn't paid much attention because it was so dark uh, to these areas of uh, paraphilia and you know uh, um, signatures and so on. It, it, it wasn't necessary to get a conviction, but in order to understand this person, the offender, you want to understand where they've been 
where they're going, uh, uh, potential victims, and what drives them, because then it makes it a little bit easier down the road in doing other types of these, these types of, of uh, investigations. So again, it's, it's a fascinating field, very dark, but uh, I, I think as people get more experience in the field, um, it does have a certain attraction to a, a certain population of people who want to delve into the dark side, not as a groupie, but that's the last thing we need are people want because they're, they're, they're groupies. We need people who are really um, fascinated and interested in the dark side. And I was, I, you know, I, came, I had a wonderful mother. I had a, I, I thought great childhood um, and nothing really bad happened to me as a child at all. Uh, but as I grew up, in my high school yearbook, what do you want to do if you ever grow up? I want to be a criminologist and, and I'm going to be you know, an investigator. I'm going to join the RCMP in Canada where I'm from and so on. I didn't join law enforcement, but I ended up training law enforcement instead. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience for me uh, because I do want to shed light on areas that heretofore we've kind of ignored or, or been too fearful. It's just been too dark to get into it. But I think if we're going to understand victims and victim-offender relationships, we do have to understand where, where how they how they develop and where they go. Um, so I, and we know a lot about, more about offenders now than we ever have, not just serial killers, but offenders in general. And it's because we do research and we train and uh, we get together. Now we collaborate a lot more with law enforcement. Um, and, and and by the way, we're not here as a forensic psychologist or criminal psychologist. I, I'm not here to solve crimes. I'm here to help law enforcement solve the crimes. They get the credit. I get the paycheck. I like that. It's a good relationship, but um, we're not there to insert ourselves. We're there to assist uh, law enforcement and, and, you know, attorneys. I, I work on defense cases, prosecution, civil cases, and so on. And I give advice and I kind of help direct certain investigations and so on, but I never am in charge of that. That's not my job. That's not my that is their job, and I'm not there to undermine them. I'm there to support them. So that's really important. It's, it's a great experience. I absolutely love my career. I wouldn't change it for a second. Absolutely. Great job at it. And by the way, folks, a lot of times the TV, and completely justifiable, whether it comes from movies, TV shows, or the news, you don't find out everything that actually happens in these murders. Uh, you get part of it, and even some of the ones that they do kind of release a little bit that gets kind of heinous. There was a murder just the other day, Dr. Hickey. Um, actually, it was about four or five months ago, but they released the information where the man had killed his wife the night before Christmas and then posed her outside on the living room with glasses in front of the kids while they opened the gifts, and he said that the, the mom had been hung over from a long night. Um, that was a lot of work there. Yeah, he, he did a lot of planning and thinking about that. Um, and of course, you know, obviously he has no sense of compassion or thought for his children. Um, either he is mentally ill, but it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like, you know, he's really acting out some really dark fantasies. Um, but there might have been mentalists. I don't know the case. I mean, I, I, I read about it a little bit, but there's obviously a lot that we're not knowing about yet. Uh, and it, it will come out eventually. That's one of the things people don't realize, too, because if you have a mental illness, like a psychotic episode, uh, paranoid schizophrenia, something like that, it becomes very difficult to become that organized in a sense. doesn't mean you can't, but the odds are not going to be in your favor. Correct. Um, you know, because they don't necessarily have think clearly. They have cognitive, uh, cognitive distortions. And so they might do things that 
if they were of sound mind that they wouldn't they wouldn't do. Um, so again, we t- jump to conclusions sometimes about those types of cases, thinking, "Oh, the guy must be crazy." Well, and maybe he was insane, uh, and he was acting it out, but it was so organized. It's like sleepwalking, uh, sleep stabbing, for example, sleep stabbing. And uh, that's where somebody is asleep, they get up and they, and one one fellow he drove uh, many miles to his father father in law's home and stabbed him to death, and then claimed later that he was sleepwalking, sleep stabbing. And you know, the courts said, okay, we, we accept that. And so they let him go, uh, that he was sleepwalking. Um, but I, uh, you know, I can I understand sleepwalking, but the, the reality of going out and, and killing somebody and never being aware of what you're doing, that's pretty deep sleep. Uh, and that's a pretty strange way of acting out. You know, why not go get a job at you know, In-N-Out or something you know, <laughs> while you're sleeping? It's, that's a big stretch. They tried that down in Arizona. This other one was in Canada. Tried the same same defense down in Arizona, and they said, "No, no, 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 no. We're not buying that. No, no, no. There's I can't no see Arizona doing that one. <laughs> no, no. They're they're not going to accept that one. Not not in the, in the U.S. No. Let me ask you this: Some people always wonder. There's been people who have committed heinous crimes, murdered, and then they're released 20 years later, 15 years later, um, and people wonder how can he continue to live a normal life after doing these horrendous crimes, right? He's going to have to kill somebody else, or he's going to have to have a mental breakdown. Um, is that true? Well, okay. So people do age out of out of crime. They as they get older, they 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 can't run as fast. Um, the ones who don't age out are like sex offenders. They they can be eighty, ninety, hundred years old, literally hundred years old, and still be sex offenders. Uh, still have the desire to be a sex offender, but most other criminals tend to age out of it. So when someone who is a sadistic serial killer is released, the fantasies are still there. Maybe they're going to change their MO a bit, um, but physically uh, it, it couldn't, you know, maybe their physical deterioration doesn't allow them to act out the way they used to act out. doesn't mean they don't want to. So um, we don't usually let serial killers free. Once in a while we see someone being released, uh, but it's pretty, pretty rare because we do know they're, they're a risk. Like most of us tend to, then age out of a lot of things, but these guys, you never want to release someone who has had a long history of killing people. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer himself said, you know, I, he told his mom one day, he said, I, I don't want to be in prison anymore. But on the other side of the coin, he said, I understand that I'm very dangerous. So what, maybe three weeks later, he was dead and he was killed in prison. I, I doubt that he fought back when he was attacked. Yeah, very unlikely that he fought back. So, um, yeah, That's we're not, yeah, so, please go ahead, yeah. Oh, that was the, that's an important part you make as we get ready to wrap up. But I think I can't remember what country it was. I'll just leave it nameless for now. Not to upset anybody. But they had a serial killer. He was in the prison, I think, for 12 or 15 years. They released him uh, in good behavior, which a lot of them tend to act that way. And they thought he was done. And you can, in my opinion, you can tell they were a little bit naive or at least didn't understand it because it, within five hours later, he killed somebody on the subway. Right, right. And, and we do see that sometimes, especially in countries where they have a, a maximum sentence of 25 years and then you're released. Uh, and so, you know, I can look really good in 25 years. I can make myself look pretty good to, to the parole board um, and I'm going to be released. Uh, that doesn't mean I won't act out again. So, you know, each case is different. It has to be looked at very, very carefully. Um, it's no governor in the United States wants to release, you know, give someone a pardon or release them uh, if they're serial killers, because it'll be on them. 
they have to act out again. So it's pretty rare that you ever see someone doing their time uh, with no death penalty and then, and then of course, being released to act out again. That's, it's, it, it has happened, but it's very, very rare. Yeah. Well, Dr. Hickey, thank you so much for taking the time. You're more than welcome. I've enjoyed being here, and, and uh, hopefully the audience um, enjoyed it too. I mean, forensically speaking. That's right, folks. If you have any questions, we're in the last minute. Go ahead and ask them. If not, make sure you should check out the playlist and subscribe tomorrow, 12 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. Again, we're going to have uh, retired HSI agent Victor Avila here talking about the drug cartels. Next week, our schedule goes back to normal. Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. Pacific time. All our shows will be back. We've got Life on the Beat on Monday. How FBI, the FBI recruiting process. You don't want to miss that. Tuesday, we're going to have Smashley, a UFC fighter, uh, MMA fighter, and a police officer. She's going to be doing her first episode on Tuesday. Wednesday, we got another unsolved murder. Um, that's going to be an, uh, uh, a typical case. We're going to be listening to that one. That's going to be a tough case. And then Thursday, we also have Dr. Hickey's coming back. We're going to be talking about signatures and trophies, what the differences are. And then Friday, uh, we have another situational awareness uh, video coming up. I think with Arcadia Cognorati, you'll be able to catch that one. Uh, they had one already on situational awareness. It's called The Breakdown, where they look at videos and break down things for us. So, Dr. Hickey, I think that's it for now. I don't see any questions. But, uh, again, folks, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Dr. Hickey. Bet. Good to be here, and we'll see you next week. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.